Good to see everybody on a nice, humid morning, huh? Guess we needed the rain. Just a few, uh, again, highlights here. Uh, your bulletin announcements. I really want to highlight, though, the baptism. If you've placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, but you've never been baptized, I'll tell you, that's the first command. That's what the first command Jesus asks us to do. He wants us to publicly identify with him. So if you have genuinely placed your faith and trust in Jesus but never been baptized, please see me or Jeff or just call the office or Tom. We would love to have you part of that baptism that will be occurring in August. Also, we need Sunday school teachers. Now, I know that sounds like the bubonic plague for some people, but they are humans. And actually, they're more open than most. And we do need Sunday school teachers uh, for the fall. And we need them in all categories. So if the Holy Spirit is actually knocking on your heart or your conscience and challenging you to be a Sunday school teacher, please, please do not repress that, what you're experiencing. And uh, you can call the church office or see Sue Malassi or myself or Jeff. We'd love to sign you up or talk to you about that. Um, all right. Uh, everybody's always waiting for the joke. So I won't disappoint you on a summer morning. It goes like this. Uh, a couple men were camping in Yellowstone National Park. Their, their names were Bill and Ray. And they were in the men's restroom and they were shaving and washing up and they began talking to one another, and at one point, Bill asked Ray this question. He said, Bill, uh, Bill asked Ray, what do you do for a living? And uh, Ray replied, why? He said, I'm a juvenile rehabilitation counselor. And Bill thought for a moment. He said, yeah, I'm a parent too. <laughs> Some of you might need to think about that. <laughs> All right. Well, this morning we're going to continue our study in the book of Ephesians. We are in the relationship section of Ephesians. And I want to, uh, in particular, talk about parenting this morning. But in general, I'm going to talk about developing people. That's really what the name of the game is, is developing people. So I've entitled the message this morning, A Tough Job. It's a tough job. Lord, I just thank you. For this morning, I thank you for the worship time, the time of worship. I just praise you for our worship leaders and, and Lord, just what they bring to the table uh, for us, Lord God. And I just thank you for them. And uh, as we now move to the word, I just ask, Holy Spirit, that you would come. That you would come because only you can really soften our hearts. Your word is powerful. It's living, you say. It can bring life to our souls, to our spirits, even to our bodies. And so you are welcome here, Holy Spirit. I pray that you come in a powerful way. I say you would fill me from the soles of my feet to the crown of my head. We do not need a word from man this morning, but we need a word from you. And I just pray that you will have your way in these next several minutes. And I praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. So Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 4. If you have your owner's manual, you can certainly turn there. But he says this, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger by the way you treat them. Rather, bring them up with the discipline and instruction that comes from the Lord. Now, uh, 
depending on what translation you have, but many of the translations actually would translate fathers as parents. I think that actually is a bad translation. You say, well, why is that a bad translation? Because the Greek word that Paul uses here is pater, and pater almost always in the New Testament means father. In fact, if Paul wanted to say parents, there are about three other Greek words he could have used to say parents. No, I think he's actually singling out men fathers here. And you say, why would he do that? And the obvious answer is because men don't tend to be as nurturing and as evolved in the child raising or child rearing process. In fact, in the ancient world, they had a thing called patria potestis. That means the father's power. In ancient Rome, the man, the husband, the father had absolute authority. He could determine whether his child or even his wife would live Or die. He could determine, or he could have his children whipped. He could have his children sold into slavery. He could even determine, and often did determine, whom they would marry. How would you like to be a child living those times, huh? Kind of a lot of fun. A Roman father very, very rarely showed affection to his children and generally had nothing to do with the child rearing process. It was either the mother or it was an elderly relative or it was a slave who actually raised the children. And so when Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 4, potters, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger by the way you treat them, but rather bring them up with the discipline and instruction that comes from the Lord, that was absolutely revolutionary for ancient times. The apostle Paul is making it crystal clear that fathers matter. They are necessary for the child-rearing process. Now, the truth is, in our day and time, you know, fathers can get the idea that they're really not that necessary. They're really not that important. For example, Brigham Young University, the College of Family and Social Sciences, not too long ago printed an article entitled, Daddies or Dummies? Is the media teaching our youth to disregard dad? Here is part of what that article said. A new study reveals that the media may not only be portraying fathers negatively, but actually teaching youth to disrespect and disregard their dads. The article went on to say 40% of fatherly behavior on popular tween television shows like the Disney Channel's Good Luck Charlie could be considered ridiculous or buffoonery. But what is truly eye-opening is the on-screen response of children to their fathers, A full 50% of it is actually negative. Child actors on television's programs were often seen doing things such as rolling their eyes, making fun of their father, verbally and non-verbalized, verbally criticizing him, walking away and experiencing or expressing annoyance. End of quote. It is not too surprising, therefore, that fathers here in America feel defeated and somewhat undervalued. Now, I want to quote for you some rather interesting statistics. In fact, you may find some of these statistics quite surprising. Here they are. The average American father is equally as or slightly more free in expressing verbal affection for his children as the average American mother. The average American husband actually spends more time doing domestic chores if you include yard work and auto maintenance than the average American wife who works an equal number of hours outside the home. 
The typical American father, on average, gives non-disciplinary physical touch to young children more times a day than the average American mother. Now, as I said, you might find these statistics pretty surprising and, and, and quite interesting. Unfortunately, I just made them up, but nonetheless, they are surprising and rather interesting. The reality is, the average man in America lives in two worlds. He lives in the positional world, and he lives in a personal world. Now, the man generally does fairly well in the positional world, because the positional world is where competition, power, and respect are God's. And like I said, most men tend to do pretty well there most of the time. In fact, men, if they do read, they will read books like this, How to Dress for Success, Power for Negotiating, The Art of the Deal, How to Swim with Sharks Without Being Eaten Alive, Super Leadership, Managing with Power. These are the books that men tend to read. And like I said, as a result, they tend to do fairly well out there in the positional world. Now, when it comes to the personal world, though, men don't tend to do so well, do they? Not at all. Uh, In fact, the personal world, now listen to this, men, is the ability to develop personal relationships. The personal world is the ability to develop personal relationships. On a scale of 1 to 10, 1 being low and 10 being high, the average man would score somewhere between two and five, probably, on, on, on that scale. So I have a few questions now for the men. Men, if you were to walk out on your wife today, how would she feel? Broken or relieved? If you were to die, how many days would it take for her to replace you? Could your wife honestly look at you in the eyes? And say, honey, I could never, ever replace you. How about your children? If you were gone, other than the money that you make, would your children notice? Would they care? Would they be happy? Or would they genuinely miss you? The reality is husbands, fathers generally do not read books like How to Be a Warm and Sensitive Husband. Or how to be a hero to your kids. Or what women wish men knew about women. Or men, how to develop your feminine side. Or how to give and get affection. Most men, most fathers, most husbands wouldn't be caught dead reading those kinds of books. And the question is why, and I'll tell you why. Because most men believe that the positional world is more important than the personal world. Most men believe it is far more important to be successful in the positional world than it is the personal world. And if you are a man, if you are a husband, if you are a father, and you really say that you're born again, you say that you're a follower of Jesus Christ, I want you to know that when you die and you stand before Jesus, you will in no way be considered successful. Unless you are effective with people. God is in the people business. I don't care what you do out there. You are in the people business. I don't care if you sell telephones. You're still in the people business. And what matters to God is how well you have impacted your wife. 
your children, your neighbor, your co-worker with Jesus Christ and furthering his kingdom. That is what matters to the living God. And I pray, I pray you will believe that. Because trust me, the moment you die and you stand before Jesus, you're going to realize that Jesus was in the people business. All right. So in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 4, we see a negative command, and then we see a positive command for the father. So let's look at the negative command first. Skip, can you put that up? Fathers do not, well, no, that's the second half of verse 6. Fathers do not provoke your children to anger. Do not exasperate them by the way you treat them. So fathers are not to provoke. They are not to get their children angry. Actually, it's pretty easy to do. As a father of three daughters, it's pretty easy to get them angry and to exasperate them. How many here remember David Letterman? David Letterman now is retired, but one of the things that actually made David Letterman famous is he had the top ten list. Remember those top ten lists? Well, I want to give you the top ten mistakes that the average father makes in parenting according to the, in quote, experts. And don't ask me who the experts are. It's whoever thinks they know what they're doing here, all right? So let me give you the top ten mistakes. Number ten that a father can make. Failure to discuss the uncomfortable. That's things like the birds and the bees, all right? Mistake number nine. Failure to give your child the right to fail. Failure to give your child the right to fail. Mistake number eight, failure to admit when you are wrong. Failure to admit when you are wrong. You know, it's funny. I was away for a week. It was very nice. And got to spend time with two of my daughters. And, you know, and then my wife. So I had three females ganging up on me. And they said, you know what we hate about men? And I'm right there in the room. They, they pulled me into this discussion. They said I needed to hear this. They said, what we hate about men, what we don't like about our husbands, what we even had trouble with you, Dad, is why can't you guys just say I'm sorry? Why can't you just admit when you are wrong? It would have gone a long way. And you know what I did? I said, I'm sorry. (laughs) I said, it covers all of your teenage years. Mistake number seven, failure to give an honest answer to an honest question. Mistake number six, failure to communicate approval or acceptance. Mistake number five, failure to approve of your children's friends without first making an attempt to get to know them. Mistake number four, failure to let your child develop their own personality. I want to talk about this more in a few minutes. Failure to allow your child to develop their own personality. Mistake number three, failure to give time to your child. Please do not buy the great lie that it's quality of time that matters, not quantity of time. That is a lie from the pit of hell. Your child both wants quality as well as quantity. Trust me in that. Mistake number two, the failure to treat your children as people rather than problems to be solved. And the greatest mistake that you can make as a father is this, failure to be a consistent, godly example to your children. Nothing will mess your children up more than the failure to be a consistent, 
godly example and role model to your children. So that is the negative, all right? Now let me move to the positive. What should a father do? And the Apostle Paul writes this in the last half of Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 4. Do you have that, Skip? He says, rather bring your children up with the discipline and instruction that comes from the Lord. What Paul is talking about here in a word is discipleship. And according to Paul, the fathers have two critical areas that they are to disciple their children in. First area, Paul says that a good father, a godly father, will discipline his children. Now, the Greek word here that Paul employs does not mean so much punishment or correction. Now, listen to this. What he's talking about here is a father is to teach his children how to live life successfully how they are to walk the Christian walk, how they are to follow Jesus Christ. This is the work of the Father. The Father is the one that needs to be doing this. So here's a question for men. If someone came up to you and asked you, what does a successful life look like, what would you say? They come up to you and they say, hey, what is a successful life? I mean, this is the challenge to you. If you're a father, this is what Paul is saying. The first thing when he says, I'm to discipline my children, I was to show my three daughters how to live life successfully. Do you have an answer to that question? Well, if you don't have an answer to that question, it's still never, ever too late. You know, here is the book of all books. This is the instruction manual. This is the owner's manual. And if you are a father, you know what I would challenge you to do? Starting today. I would challenge you to read the book of Proverbs. The book of Proverbs is the book of wisdom. That is what is going to teach you how to live life successfully, not only for yourself, but also for your children. In fact, Billy Graham, uh, I don't know if Skip's got his picture or not, but most of us remember Billy Graham. Billy Graham, of course, is the famous revivalist. He's a famous evangelist. And Billy Graham read a chapter of Proverbs every single day. Did you know that? He read a chapter of Proverbs every single day. And so I would challenge, if you are a father, to be doing that. Now here's my next question. What is the starting point for leading a successful life? Anybody know what the starting point is for leading a successful life? (laughs) Jesus, that's generally the right answer. It's found in Proverbs chapter 1 and verse 7. It's a well-known verse. It says this in Proverbs chapter 1 and verse 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge or wisdom or success. So what King Solomon is saying, he's the wisest man to ever live. And King Solomon says the foundation, the starting point for a successful life is to fear God. Now, the Hebrew word for fear is urat. And I did a Hebrew word study of urat, and you know what it means? Fear. (laughs) Terror. To be afraid. That's right, to be afraid. Do you remember when you were a kid? I remember when I was a boy. I don't know if this happened anymore with the, the boomers, you know, because the boomers are lightweights. But, you know, I would do something wrong. And my mom would say, you go to your room, Frank, and wait till your dad gets home. You remember that? 
And I remember going to my room, and, 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 and my heart would be in my throat. I'd look at the clock, and it seemed like minutes were hours. I was just waiting for my dad to come through the door, because you know what he was going to do? He was going to apply the board of education to the seed of knowledge. And that was, he first did that, and then he asked questions. That was how it was in my day. But you see, we, we kind of live, you know, uh, in lightweight times. No, really. We, we, we've just got wimpy preaching going on. We've got milk toast preaching going on. And we don't want to offend you. We don't want to hurt your fragile psyches. So we give you this picture of God that he's this grandfatherly figure, you know, with this long beard. Wrong. Challenge you to read Revelation. He doesn't look like that. No, if you really look at the God of the Bible, he wants to and expects to, I'll tell you when you see him, when the Apostle John in Revelation, who knew Jesus, he walked with Jesus for three years, he sees the resurrected Jesus, the glorified Jesus. You know what he did? He didn't say, hey, dude, fist pump. He hits the floor. No, he hits the ground. That's fear. It's way beyond respect. It's fear. He was afraid. And you say, well, why would God, why would the God of the universe want me to have fear? Why would he want me to be afraid? I'll tell you why. Because he loves you. And he wants you to obey him. Because, see, if you obey God, guess what happens? You live. You live. God wants you to have that kind of fear, uh, that you would fear him enough that you would be obedient to him because he really, really wants you to live. Now, there is a second way that we as a father can teach our child or children how to live life successfully. It's found in Proverbs 22.6. Skip, can you put that up? Proverbs 22.6 is also well known. Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Now, most people interpret this verse to mean that if I bring my child or children up to follow Jesus Christ, even though they have this rebellious period, they'll come back at some point and begin to follow Jesus again. They'll begin, they'll begin to follow Christ. I think there's some truth to that, but I don't really think that that's what that verse is really saying. You know, it's interesting. Train up a child in the way that they should go. It's really train up the child according to their bent. To their bent. You know what that means? It means that your child has a personality. They have a design. And so what a good father is going to do with their child, by the way, is they're going to sit their child down at some point and say, hey, you know, I've been looking at your life, and I see that you have these gifts, these talents. I see you have this design. I really think, you know, you might be good at doing this, or you might be good at doing that. But you're taking the time as a father to really know your child, sit them down, and tell them what you see in them. You know, I will never forget a discussion I had my, my, with my father about seven years ago. This is before he had contacted Louis Body's dementia. And so he was still lucid in his mind. And, and we, he, he brought up the issue of money. I mean, that was the bugaboo issue. And he was kind of disappointed. He was always sort of disappointed in me and, and, and the track that I took. And he was disappointed in the amount of money that I wasn't making. And... Uh, he kind of got under my skin, and I took after my mother. I had the Italian side. 
so when someone gets under my skin, I can let loose. So I said, you know, Dad, I hear what you're saying, but you know what really disappointed me about our relationship? Let me tell you what disappointed me about our relationship. Do you know that not once, not once when I was either young, not once as a teenager did you ever just sit down with me man to man and say, son, this is what I see in you. These are the gifts and the talents that I see. I think you'd be good in this area that you might, you know, maybe this is the path that you should go. I said, you only gave me two choices in life. You said I could either be a doctor or I could be a lawyer. I said, did it ever occur to you, Dad, I didn't want to be a suit? I didn't like either one of them. Competition, Dad, age two, ran in my blood. I either wanted to be a professional football player or coach it. And just for your information, if you haven't noticed, Dad, a college coach now, a good one, or a professional coach actually will make more money than you. How about them apples? And there was just silence. And then I said, you know, Dad, I forgive you, though, because God used used you to bring me to Christ. And God had a different plan for me. And it was one of the few times that my dad actually apologized to me. You know, I learned a valuable lesson from that. I swore I would never do that to my children. I would never conform them to my image. And if Susan were here, she's with the kids, she will tell you, I did well at that. I sat down with each one of them and said, look, this is what I see in you. Here's the gifts, the talent. Here's what I think you would be really good at and how you could glorify God and God could use you in a great way. By the way, I didn't just do that with my children. I did that with Susan. I did not try to conform my wife into my image. I would talk to her and say, Susan, you know, I really see you have these strengths. I really see God could use you in this way in a a great, great way. Do you know what your goal is as a Christian? You can do this in your home as a man with your wife, your children. Guess what? You want to be successful out there? Do you want to be successful out there? See, we're so interested in us moving up and everybody looking at what we're doing but the way you're going to be a success if you're a man out there is you begin to take your coworkers and your managers and you help them be successful. No, I guarantee you, you will be amazed at the success you will be if you begin to take people, because remember, you're in the people business. I'm in the people business. And if you begin to take people and say, you know, I've been looking at you, I think you'd be really good at this, and you begin to develop them. You'd be amazed at what would happen to you even in the secular place. All right, finally this morning, I want to look at one other area that a man is to disciple his children. He says this, that we fathers are to disciple our children in the area of faith. And he says this again in Ephesians 6.4, that the father is to bring his children or child up with the instruction that comes from the Lord. Please note, fathers, he picks you out. We are to teach our children. 
how to follow Jesus Christ. We are to teach our children what it means, Galatians 5, to be spirit-filled and to walk in the spirit. Not the wife. Now, your wife may help you in this, and I hope she does. It's also, by the way, not your Sunday school teacher's job. A lot of you know, parents just dump their kids off at Sunday school and say, hey, fix my kid. No. They may help you in that process, but it's the father's job. By the way, it's not the youth leader's job either, although hopefully they will help you in the process. It is the father's job. By the way, discipling, bringing up a child is not women's work, believe it or not. It's man's work. It takes a man to develop a child of God on fire for Jesus Christ. Did you know that? And it's time that we men stand up, we get up to the plate, and we start swinging. We've left it to the women to do this. And no, it's, it's, it's it had horrible results, and I'm not blaming the women for it. Paul picks the man out. You're the leader. As the leader goes, so goes the house, so goes the church, so goes the business, so goes the sports team. Leadership matters. And the question is, what are they seeing in the house? Now, I I, I want to end with this. Here's the challenge this morning, all right? The challenge is this. This comes from a guy by the name of Phil Calloway. He's kind of a well-known author and speaker. And he tells this story. He said this. It was May 31st, 1986. It was a Saturday. My friends played softball that day. I paced a hospital hallway with my wife. At least I think it was my wife. Whereas Ramon had always been rather sweet and soft-spoken, this woman was more like Attila the Hun in a hospital gown. Rub my back, she commanded. I pulled out the tennis ball. Don't touch me, she hollered. This continued for what seemed like 14 days until I found myself face-to-face with my first-born son. Sure, he was a little wrinkly, but who could blame him? I held him close. I touched his tiny fingers and counted his toes, all ten of them. I looked into his eyes. They were blue like mine. Then the most amazing thing happened. A revival, I suppose. As I looked into those blue eyes, it was as if I heard these words. Callaway, for the first 25 years of your life, you have been a hypocrite. You've been close to the church, but far from God. You are holding in your arms the one person you'll never, ever be able to hide that from. If you think this little guy won't see it, you are naive. People ask me when I became a Christian, and I say May 31st, 1986. You see, that night for the first time in my life, I bowed my head and said, Dear God, I'm sorry. Make me real. I want my precious little boy to hunger and to thirst after righteousness. If he won't learn it from me, he has two strikes against him already. I meant every single word of it. It's been slow going sometimes, but I believe God heard that prayer. Five years later, this same little boy looked up at me one night and said, Daddy, I want to be just like you. And tears came to my eyes. I don't have all the child-rearing answers for you, but I do know this. If you want your child to love God, you must love him first. If you want your son to obey, be obedient to that still, small voice of God. If you want to change your life, 
to change it for the good than have children and lots of them. Father, I pray for the men, especially in this congregation, because they do have a tough job. We like to say that we're the leader. But being a leader means that we're to be an example, not barking out commands. And I pray now, Holy Spirit, that you would be working in a powerful way, bringing conviction where conviction is necessary. You're not a God that wants to condemn. You're a God that wants to bring conviction that leads to repentance leads to healing, and then leads to change. Positive change. And so I ask now, Lord, during this last song, that men would allow you to search their heart. Instead of denying and rationalizing, maybe for the first time, allowing you to penetrate and bring real change to their leadership. And I ask for this in your precious name. Amen.